This is Pure Murders and Mysteries. Let's talk murder. Welcome everyone to Pure Murders and Mysteries. I'm Jasmine and with me are Lindy. Hello. And Brad. Hey there. Thanks for coming back and tuning in to Pure Murders and Mysteries. Last week we talked about some not so fun Jeffrey Dahmer facts, but this week we're delving into another mysterious case, the unsolved murder of Eliza Sherman. Before we cross the crime scene tape, I want to let everybody know that Pure Murders and Mysteries is brought to you by PureFandom.com. Pure Fandom is filled with some amazing writers who bring the latest information on your movies or TV fandom that you love. Please keep in mind that this episode deals with true crime, violence, adult topics, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Now that we have that taken care of, let's talk murder. All right. Let's dive into the case of the murder of Lisa Sherman. So just to start it all off, Eliza is the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, and she grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. She attended the Huron Road Nursing School, and during those years, she attended events with fellow Jewish students at Case Western, which is also in Cleveland. That's where she met her future husband, Sanford. They had two pretty major things in common. Not only was Sanford a fellow medical student, but his parents were also Holocaust survivors, which is very strange. That's that's mm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Eliza and Sanford's courtship led them to be married in 1982. So let's fast forward several years from then. Sanford had an ophthalmology practice, but let's just say the family was not hurting for money. They were pretty wealthy, and Sanford made sure to let people know that he was kind of known for flaunting his money. That does not mean that everything was good at home. Apparently, Sanford was pretty tough on his kids and his wife. And Elise's brother, Edward Zinn, he said that Sanford had two sides to him. He quoted uh, with the Cleveland mag, he said that he was a guy who could be kind of tough and mean, even with his own family. He sometimes didn't hesitate to exhibit that in an open setting with other people watching, which is interesting and very telling. So Eliza and Sanford had four children, Jeremy, Josh, Jason, and Jennifer. They're doing the whole Kardashian thing. In 1995, the family of five, because at that time, Jeremy was not born yet, moved into a 4,800 square foot home in Cleveland. But money doesn't buy happiness, y'all, because the Shermans were anything but that. So seeing your parents fight is common. I think we've all kind of experienced that at some point. This mm. family situation was not normal. So Eliza and Sanford's fighting got so bad that the cops were regularly called, usually by one of the kids, and things only devolved over the next decade. The family situation was Horrible, to put it lightly. So in 2004, Sanford closed his practice. Eliza took up a job as an in vitro nurse in the city. And it seemed like Sanford jumped right into retirement mode because he started spending a lot of time away from the house. They had um, family homes in Florida and New York. And he was kind of bouncing around to these other locations. So over the next year, things turned quite volatile in the Sherman home. So in December 2014, the youngest child, Jeremy, called the cops after a fight broke out between Eliza and Sherman and I or Sanford. And I think it was over a Hanukkah present, which Yeah, you know, I think it was something about the dice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Hanukkah's serious, I guess I don't I don't know. They were <laughs> 
a hot mess. And Josh and Jennifer decided to join in the fight. A chair got thrown. Jeremy got scared, called the cops. At this point, calling the cops when your parents fight is like a regular thing for this family. So I think that it was kind of normalized somehow. And then a year later, in October 2015, the cops got called for another fight. And this one um, was apparently over Sanford hanging out with a friend of his named Larry that Aliza was not that much a fan of. So we're going to talk more about Larry later because there's some interesting things um, kind of between him and Sanford. So regarding this fight, Sanford said that Aliza beat the shit out of his car in the family TV and then Aliza claimed that he threatened to leave her and take all the family money. And it was basically just a shit show, but kind of typical for this household. Um, and this all led to an inevitable divorce that was long overdue. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, though, that the kids were so used to calling the police. And yet the police never were just like, leave us alone, don't only call us when it's like, you know, actually bad. Um, like that's not a great precedent to send that the first thing a kid would do is pick up the phone and call the police. That's- yeah. And, and I don't know how many times I know there's something out there about how many times total the police mm-hmm. got called for domestic um, disputes between Aliza and Sanford, but it was definitely more than normal stuff was not good in that household. But I think, you know, yes, we can't put the entire blame on Sanford because mm-hmm. in general, they were a dysfunctional couple. I think both of them kind of flew off the handle. And when there was a fight, it escalated. And that's, I mean, it's kind of on both of them. And we don't know the personal situation, but they yeah. were like a dangerous mix, I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But I've known um, people like that before, you know, who just call the police for no reason whatsoever. It's like, uh-huh. And you hear that all the time on nine one one calls, like you know, someone cut in front of me on a at a drive through. <laughs> some people just get used to calling all the time for stuff, and it just becomes a normal thing. Yeah. Where the rest of us would be like, okay, okay, our parents are just fighting. We don't have to freak out. You mm-hmm. know, it, it just it's one of those things that certain families get into a habit of doing weird things that other people don't do. Yeah. Yeah. And I and regarding Eliza and Sanford. I never read anywhere about there being physical abuse or anything. I I don't think it ever escalated to that level, at least Mm -hmm. not to my knowledge. Well, I think if it would, like the cops would have done a little bit more than just showing up at the house. Otherwise they're just flagged as, you know, somebody who calls them all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's like very telling that the fact that they called because everyone was fighting over a Hanukkah game, like that's insane. Then that means like the tiniest thing would set everyone off. And literally, yeah. like you said, both um, Eliza and Stanford were like very stubborn and like passionate and everything. So the kids must just be like, we needed someone else mm-hmm. to just be a witness here kind of thing. Yeah, I think they couldn't diffuse the situation once mm-hmm. it got to that point. Like the one son, I think it was in that last fight that I talked about, I think it was. Josh ended up throwing a chair because he Jennifer has always been like on her mom's side. And we'll see this more as we talk about this case, but Jennifer would step up in these fights and defend her mom. Josh, Mm -hmm. I think is the one that would always defend Sanford. Mm -hmm. And it just escalated because the family kind of pitted sides like against each other and things got physical, never 
towards each other, but like a chair being thrown. And then you've got Jeremy, who's just scared and freaked out. And he's used to calling the cops now. And it's just a shitty, messed up situation. Like Lenny said, this all led to an inevitable divorce. Uh, you may be wondering why the hell were Eliza and Sanford still married? So are we. But it took until June 2011 for Eliza to file for divorce. She hired a lawyer who was recommended to her. Um, his name was Joe Stafford of Stafford and Stafford. Eliza reported that Sanford had expressed a will to work things out, but she was way past the point of trying any longer. She wanted the marriage over ASAP. Interestingly, though, they both decided to stay living in the same house during the divorce, um, but slept in different rooms. Um, a lot, Eliza a prized family above all else, but it's like what Lindy had said before, both Eliza and Sam were, Sanford were very stubborn and very passionate. So I think it just kind of led to that. Um, ultimately, though, the family was torn apart with Josh, the oldest son, backing his father and Jennifer firmly standing behind her mother. Um, police reported visiting the home six times in 2011, and Sanford started locking up joint financial accounts. And of course, Eliza started freaking out over this. For whatever reason, at 2.10 a.m. on January 2012, Eliza wrote herself an email that read, I am really afraid he is going to have me killed. <laughs> I know. Also, why would you write yourself an email like that? I wonder if she was planning on sending it to somebody else and she got scared and sent it mm. to herself as like evidence that she, I don't know. I write myself emails all the time as reminders of stuff. Yeah. Seriously. About somebody trying to kill you though? No, but I do it as, I don't know. It, you know let's think about this. If you're writing an email to yourself, that's something that is there. And it's, you mm -hmm. know, if somebody goes to look at it, it's like, look, they wrote an email. Okay, cool. And it's in your scent or drafts or whatever. So it's always there. So mm -hmm. generally, if I need to make a note somewhere or I'm out or I'm <laughs> on the computer or whatever, I'll start yeah. an email, throw my stuff in there and save it as a draft. Yeah. But your emails to yourself are probably like, ooh, look at this chicken recipe that I'm going to make for my healthy <laughs> prep, not... Pretty sure my wife is planning to have me executed. Yeah. But I get it. I get it. <laughs> I just want all the listeners to know that Brad does insane meal prep for the whole week. And Jasmine and I think it's amazing, but it's also... I haven't even showed you my meal prep for a whole week. I'm just like doing chicken and rice and broccoli because I'm running 16 miles on an obstacle course on Saturday. <laughs> this God, is that sounds weird. like a nightmare, but I'm proud <laughs> yeah. of you. All in all, okay. a very different lifestyle. I than to do it. I'm doing it. <laughs> either yeah. Lindy and I live. <laughs> I ate three chocolate chip cookies from McDonald's today. So let's just continue with this story. Okay. Oh my god, yum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Elisa wrote herself an email, and apparently that's not as odd and, and unusual as I had thought. Um <laughs> Uh, so essentially, the tension brought on by the divorce between Eliza and Sanford was escalating. Um, Eliza even deadbolted the inside of her bedroom at night to lock herself in. Um, either way, neither of them wanted to leave because if they did, they both thought the courts would take that as them vacating the property. Um, also, another interesting thing is that during the divorce proceedings, the lawyer Stafford actually had his license suspended. This was like the first of very un, not great things that's going to happen in the case. Um, and Eliza's case was handed over to an associate named Gregory Moore. 
Aliza did not like him. He was unresponsive and unreliable. Moore has a laundry list of issues that we'll tackle a little later in the episode. Um, Moore kept pushing back court dates, allegedly due to him being unprepared and basically just being awful at his job. Um, But the judge finally said enough. The divorce trial was given a final date, March 26, 2013. Keep in mind, this is two years after Aliza had initially filed for divorce. So, so this has all been drawn out for a very long time. Yeah, it was going on for a while. The divorce was messy. They both wanted out in the end, and it it was not pretty. Like Jasmine said, cops have been called multiple times in 2011. Um, Lisa's locking herself in the room. Like, it's time for this to end. Right, there's a deadbolt in the room. So you're uh-huh. locking the room so no one can come in it. It's it's a weird thing. It's mm-hmm. not, that's not normal. So is writing so is writing yourself an email, Brad. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I have all sorts of weird quirks, so I'm sure people would be talking about me going, Yeah, that was not normal. Yep, nope, not at all. Anyhow, <laughs> Now we're on to the murder. Just two days before the start of the trial, Aliza told her youngest son, Jeremy, who was 17 at the time, that she was running to her mother, so his grandmother's house, real quick, and then had to run some errands. She told him she'd bring pizza home for dinner. She was really going to Moore's office for a meeting about it. She was really going to Moore's office. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. I'm sorry. I didn't do that this time. She was really going to Moore's office for a meeting about the upcoming divorce trial. Around 5.30 p.m., broad daylight, mind you, and 30 feet from the entrance, Eliza was fatally stabbed 11 times, once in her right arm, twice in the right side of her neck, and eight times in the back. Okay, so being stabbed is an up-close-and-personal thing. You have to really get in there, and 11 times is a lot to stab somebody. I'm mm-hmm. just saying it's a it's a big thing. Yeah, it, it's incredibly personal. Yeah, that's you're in someone's space, you're there, you're doing your thing. You know, like a gunshot is like you're shooting somebody, you're in you're done. Mm-hmm. Prison stabbings are usually like a couple times in the ribs, you know, and hit you in the kidneys and kill you, but 11 <laughs> times, it's a lot. Wow, Brad. That was so specific. <laughs> <laughs> He's got those quirks, you know. I, I, I know people. I'm just saying. That's all. <laughs> he, knows that. he knows things. Well, yeah, but it is. You're right. It's super personal, and it takes some strength, you know. Boom. I mean, I'm sure they were on, you know, running on adrenaline, but still. And it's super risky in broad daylight, and we'll kind of talk about that some more, too. But, yeah, it's. Well, stabbing doesn't take all that much strength. It depends how many times you're stabbed, but you're you're going like okay, so stab somebody, stab something eleven times. Just do it right now with your hand. Go, uh, and you start to run out of time. No, seriously, do it. I how- am. I'm stabbing my hand towel. Right. So you're going a lot, and you know you're mm-hmm. jumping in there with the adrenaline, but it's going to run out at some point in time. Okay, so. An employee on the fourth floor of the building heard Aliza scream and ran downstairs. Um, yeah, there's a lot about this guy that I have a question about, but you're on the fourth floor. How do you hear people scream well, downstairs? Well, out, out the window. I'm on the third floor at work. I can't hear anybody happen anything downstairs when I'm at work. I'm just saying. Maybe, maybe your windows um, have been crafted 
more expertly and expensively and they're like quadruple paned. Okay. And these were only single paned. I, I would go more with the fact if it was the guy saw her getting stabbed and ran downstairs. The whole screaming uh-huh. part, I just don't... It, seeing, I could understand, but that's just me. Anyhow, he called 911 because she had lost so much blood, there was nothing that he could do. He pleaded with her to stay with him and also to stay on the ground and stay still because the 911 operator said you need to make sure she stays still because getting up after you've been stabbed, not a good idea. She was actually trying to say something but couldn't get it out with all the blood. She was rushed to a local hospital but was pronounced dead at 614... We don't know what she was trying to say, but there's a lot of theories on what she might have said. So while all of this is going on, her 17-year-old son, Jeremy, who had been expecting her home, grew worried that she hadn't been back yet. So he called his sister, Jennifer. Jennifer, at this time, is away at college. She's at a nearby college, but she lives she doesn't live at the family home anymore. So she's studying for an exam, but she gets the call from Jeremy at about 7.30, 7.45 p.m., So she looks at her phone earlier in the day. She realizes that Elisa, her mom, had texted her at about 2.55 p.m. saying that she was going to Moore's office. So just to note, Elisa and Jennifer are very close. They talk like multiple times a day. And Jennifer, more than the other kids, you know, kind of knows what's going on with the divorce and her parents. But Jennifer didn't have any other messages from her mom since 2.55 p.m. She tried calling her. She didn't answer. So she gets really worried. Around 8 p.m., she heads off and she starts driving around looking for her mom. She's kind of frantic at this point, you know, understandably. She gets a call from Jeremy while she's out driving around. And Jeremy tells her, hey, the police are on the way to the house. The police had called the, um, the Sherman house phone to say that they had to come talk to the family. So Jennifer races over to the family home. She grabs Jeremy out of the house and the two sit out in her car until the officers arrive. So Sanford was actually inside the house at this time. Jennifer doesn't want anything to do with Sanford at this point. You know, like we said before, she's firmly on her mom's side. She does not like Sanford. So Mm -hmm. the police roll up and, you know, Jennifer knows immediately that something is very, very wrong. And they let her know what has happened to her mother. Okay, from here, there was a street video that was recorded with the perpetrator running away. If you haven't seen this video yet, go ahead and look it up on YouTube. It's not that hard to find. Um, we'll put it in the article, too, yeah, for we'll you. I'll I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play the little uh, bit here that was on the news. Elements in the murder of a Cleveland Clinic nurse. Cleveland police released this surveillance video. The 10-second clip shows a person of interest with a dark hooded sweatshirt running in the area of East 13th Street in Hamilton after the stabbing. Now here's a closer look at it. Take a look. Focus on the right-hand corner of the screen. 53-year-old Eliza Sherman was stabbed near the Galleria Mall back on March 24th. The Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office said Sherman was stabbed 11 times in her head, neck, back, and right arm. Police have yet to release any description of a suspect. Now, if you watch this video, there's a lot on it that you can see. Uh, You Mm -hmm. notice that the, the figure captured is wearing a hoodie and has baggy jeans on with a dark green coat or so. But the video is graining, so there's no way to possibly tell who the person actually is. Now, things that you will notice on here, I am going with, I've looked this up on Google Streets and Google Maps, 
and looked around at a few things that are on there to kind of gauge where the person was running to. And there should be other cameras in the area that should have caught them. I don't know why. We haven't seen any other videos on there other than to assume that the person who was running away knew where the videos were, uh, the, the video cameras, and was able to, you know, dodge those, right? From looking at everything on the maps as well, you can kind of assume that the person is between 5'3 to 5'5 max range. Which sounds like female, right. sort of. I'm thinking it's a female, totally. Or a really short male. Either way, I'm still leaning towards female. Also, when you're watching the video, I want you to notice that they are holding their left arm higher than you normally would when you're walking. Mm. Or running, for that matter. At first, I kind of thought it could be an indication they're holding a weapon, like the knife or whatever. But mm. I don't know. I'm totally kind of... I have two thoughts on this. Either one, they managed to hurt themselves in the attack, or you know, as they're stabbing her 11 times... They hit themselves in the arm. But if that happened, there should have been blood residue left somewhere that, you know, the cops would have seen. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of lean towards the fact that they were holding the jacket shut so the Mm -hmm. hood wouldn't fly off them as they're running. And if you look closely at the top of their face while they were running out of the frame in one of the videos there, you can see some skin, which made me think they're holding the hood or possibly a scarf, because you can't see the face at all. Which Hmm. totally throws in the whole fact that this should have been somebody who knew where the video cameras were in this area. Uh Because why else would you run down that area and not be caught anywhere else? Which means they ducked inside another building somewhere. So, who was this person? Yeah, and... And if you watch the video, which you really should, and again, we'll link to it in the article, but it kind of looks like the way that they're running away kind of looks like a female. I mean, we say that, and a lot of people, if you start looking on Reddit and stuff, people will all say, Uh this is a female, this is a female. We can't know that for sure, but it does look like that. And also, I don't don't know if you're going to talk about this, Brad, but nobody took any of her, nobody took her purse or her jewelry. So... It definitely wasn't a robbery. It had to have been. And it's it's so personal. Like we said earlier, the way it happened is so personal. It had to be planned or premeditated or something. And exactly, because nothing was taken from her at all. I mean, if you're even trying to stage it right, you should at least try to take something. You're there. Take a purse. It's not that hard. You already stabbed her 11 times. You should be able to get it from her. Take something. Attempt to take something. But nothing was taken. So. Yeah, yeah, and like Brad, you said that if she, if the person, the perpetrator, was able to not be seen by any other camera, like this is in an episode of Sherlock, they had to do some sort of like premeditation, like scoping out the scene so that they could make sure that any video cameras on them is either like one or no video cameras. Right. So it, it could is- have been a random, out of the blue attack. Yeah, it's not that hard to kind of scope out some of these areas to figure out where the cameras are. If you know what you're looking for, you know what you're looking for. And the police did do a great job investigating it all, though. They interviewed a lot of people and even searched the Sherman house for knives matching the murder weapon. Mm. By January 2015, though, the police had no leads and nothing left to investigate, and the case was eventually dead in the water. Mm Mm-hmm. 
this yeah and this is all stuff that you can go on Google Maps and look up the area. So definitely go do it, check it out, and you'll see what I'm talking about. There had to be a place where this person knew to go. Because if it was a random robbery gone wrong, whatever, drug hit or some sh- something like that, they would have just ran off and been seen by more than one camera. Right. They had to have known that they, first of all, yes, a woman, but Eliza wasn't a tiny woman. I mean, she wasn't big, but this, if this is a woman who, who attacked her, that's pretty confident to know that you'd be able to overpower somebody who's the same size as you, essentially, in broad daylight on a street and get away. You know what I mean? But that, it, it just yeah. seems so ballsy. If you're coming up behind them, it doesn't matter because if you sneak up behind anybody, as long as you, you know, hit a couple of initial blows, you should be good to take them over. Yeah. And I guess you could assume, like, if they had been watching her for a while, and we'll talk more about this later, but if she was lingering outside, I guess mm-hmm. if they were watching her, they could have been waiting for, you know, the opportune moment. But it just seems, you know, I don't know. It's just a bold move, but. Who do we think could have done this? Let's start with one of the most obvious suspects that we have, Sanford. Um, Granted, Sanford has never been named as a suspect in Elisa's murder. And even during the funeral, Sanford stood by himself in the back. um, And the oldest son, Josh, declared during his eulogies, my father had nothing to effing do with this. Remember that Josh was Elisa's estranged son who sided with Sanford throughout the tumultuous marriage and ensuing divorce. Josh declared she was the best mother in the world, and if I found out who did this, I will take care of them myself. Yeah, so like, goes, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, at the at the funeral, some people think that it's super weird that Sanford was just hanging out in the back by himself, which yeah. it, it kind of is. But at this point, everyone that kind of knew them was suspecting Sanford and something because their marriage and their and their divorce had been so rocky so josh which i mean it seems weird but his mom just died and Mm -hmm. is he's Mm -hmm. incredibly emotional but yeah he stood up there during the funeral and declared that about his dad which is pretty intense but they were also going through a divorce so him standing in the back isn't a big thing because honestly Mm -hmm. if i'm standing at my one of my ex's funerals i'm not going to be standing in front i'll be in the back going yep i had to be here because my kids yeah Right. Yeah. And like Jennifer's first response when she um, ran back home after being having not heard from her mother was she like pushed Sanford aside. So why would Sanford want to be close enough for Jennifer to, to do that again? It would be yeah. a lot more sense to be close to exit. He could have yeah. been doing that out of respect or whatever. Who knows? But yeah. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, after Jennifer had finished her speech and like eulogies and everything, Josh coming up to talk and saying this was unexpected. It wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. And when he was saying my father had nothing to do with this, Jennifer actually stood up and said, make him stop talking. Get him out of here. What? Mm-hmm. Which is sad. Which is so sad. Yeah. But if Josh is so certain Sanford wasn't involved or responsible for Elisa's death, why do we think he's one of the most obvious suspects? For three reasons. Sanford's financial issues, his alleged affair, and his strange friendship with a man named Larry. Let's break this down. So the shit with money. Sanford was two people. 
kind and generous to friends and family, and then mean and tough. Um, like Lindy said to his family, regardless of whether they were friends there or not, he kept the family's finances. And again, like Lindy had said before, he liked to boast about his wealth. Notably, a year after Aliza's death, Jennifer replaced Sanford as executor of Aliza's estate. Let's back up a little bit. Two months after the first anniversary of Aliza's death, Jennifer filed a civil suit against her father. In it, she sought to recover more than $2 million Sanford had allegedly funneled out of a joint bank account he held with Aliza while she was alive. So Jennifer said of the civil suit is as follows. Sanford had conspired with five unnamed individuals to hide more than $2 million from Aliza. He did this by opening a Merrill Lynch account under Aliza's name. Aliza discovered this new account via a forensic accountant. She claimed she was completely unaware of opening this account or signing a power of attorney to Sanford. In fact, a forensic document examiner corroborated Jennifer's claim that the power of attorney didn't match her mother's. Mm. By the time Aliza had discovered this account, it was too late. Sanford had already closed the account and withdrawn all the money. The point to this all is that Jennifer argued those funds belonged to Aliza's estate since she was a sole proprietor of the account and had the issue been involved resolved in court, it may have belonged to Aliza upon the divorce. On the flip side, Sanford's side of the $2 million debate is that he claimed he opened the initial Merrill Lynch account upon the liquidation of his insurer, PIE, Mutual Insurance Company. A lawyer in the family had advised him to move money into a separate account under Aliza's name to protect his assets, and that Aliza gave Sanford power of attorney to control the funds because of the fact that Sanford had controlled the family's finances before. And Sanford maintains that the two of them had talked at length about the account. Also, he, Sanford contended that the funds were considered marital assets used to support the family and therefore never belonged solely to Aliza. However, a newly filed, uh, what? I was going to say, this is so confusing for my brain. But yeah. all I keep thinking is that she says she did not sign it and the signatures didn't match. I don't know yeah, how you get around a weird recollection of a lot of conversations, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, power of attorney is pretty unique and memorable to sign. And isn't there like a record of it? in a bank or somewhere, it's easy to track down whether she signed it or not, didn't sign it, right? Well, a power attorney, is, a power attorney is signed in front of, uh, you know, usually got to have signed in front of a judge, I believe, or... Yeah, and then, or like the person who does a stamp, what is it? Yeah, well, notary. notary. It's a notary. Yeah. Anybody can be a notary, <laughs> so I'm not buying anything on that one. Yeah, I can be a notary. I, I just recently became a notary. Oh, you did? Yeah, like, you don't have to do, I mean, it's literally... Any, like yeah. Brad said, anybody it, can do I mean, it. I mean, a notary is a little bit more. You actually have to pay to do get certified and everything else like that. I can marry people, so there you go. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, power of attorney is a more legal binding document that there are stipulations depending on what state you live in as mm -hmm. to what is in that. And it is signed by an officer of the court, yada, yada. A lot of mm -hmm. stuff goes into it. It's not something that you just go – Oh, they didn't sign it. You have to have verification that somebody signed it. It's like a sign it in front of a witness, right? Unless but I think, the other person think, is like totally uh, incapacitated and cannot do it. Yeah, and it's like in a special circumstances, like you know, you're you know in a coma or whatever. You need somebody as a power of attorney. 
this person, relative, whatever, is going to take care of your legal affairs because you are not able to. Right. Yeah, I work in life insurance. (laughs) There you go. But I think with this, and I don't know if this is in here or not, but I'm pretty certain that the people who were the notaries on this couldn't even remember if they had actually seen Elisa. They couldn't confirm somehow that they had actually seen Hmm. Elisa Hmm. sign this, which I don't know how that makes sense, but yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's a weird thing if they are if anyone is lying about whether they did or did not get the power of attorney, it's a weird thing to lie about because it's easy to track down. Right. It's risky. Yeah. A lot of this stuff that happens is risky. Yeah. Right. There there are court records on that stuff. Yeah. However, a newly filed deposition in June 2016 reveals that Sanford had not in fact used the Merrill Lynch accounts funds for family expenses, but rather he had used it for quote strippers, paramours, and to settle a defamation lawsuit that Aliza never knew about, end quote. Strippers! Us, yeah. yeah. I just love the wording of that. Strippers and paramours. That's so outdated language. I mean, strip. how much money was he spending on strippers? I mean, everybody goes to the strip club, well, club every now and then. You know, it's a dollar <laughs> a piece, so it de- depends on how much you need to... Never mind. <laughs> Come on, Brad. Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, in nope. the, uh, early, uh, in the, in the late nineties, I actually lived behind the strip club and did their website. Oh. I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. Most strippers oh. are weird, but anyhow, they're, they have issues. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So that leads us to Sanford's affair. Um, Jennifer Sherman's attorney, Adam M. Freed, filed a motion for summary judgment. Um, in that judgment, Freed claimed that those trips Sanford had taken involved, and this is batshit, Sanford impersonating a cousin of his, making sexual advances towards a stripper, and even threatening to kill the stripper and her father. Sanford, in response, testified that from roughly 2006 to 2010, he had been having an affair with the woman who lived in New York and Florida, and that he made several trips to visit her. Lindy, you had mentioned before that the family had home, family homes in New York and Florida. He had, yeah, and he had homes in different area codes, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we knew that they were living pretty wealthily for quite some time. So, yeah. Other testimony by some of Sanford's closest friends, including Larry Shankar, who we'll talk about shortly, revealed that Sanford had been at the end of his rope and was emotionally distressed in the time leading up to Eliza filing for divorce. I just want to add that it's not so, I mean, it's not so weird that he's having an affair. Yes, this is kind of a a weird thing against him or whatever, since we're Mm -hmm. considering him as a suspect in our eyes. But their relationship was so bad, I'm really not Mm -hmm. surprised that he was having an affair. I think for a long time they were probably very emotionally separate. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at it as a bad thing, and and it is, but... It's also not a total surprise. And yeah. him having an affair actually leads back to the funeral with, you know, him in the back of the church. He'd already moved yeah. on. We're out of this mm-hmm. picture. Yeah. We're we're moving forward. So like I said, I have exes. I wouldn't be in the front row of the church either. So. <laughs> because yeah. when exactly did they file for divorce? It was uh 
2011, okay? But, I mean, they were in bad shape since, like, about 2004 is when Sanford closed his practice. So, again, not really a surprise here. 2004, 2011, yeah. that's a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said that 2006 to 2010 was his period of affair. So it's yeah. right in between those two bookends. Yeah, yeah. The more interesting aspect is Freed's claims that Sanford was impersonating a cousin of his and mm. the fact that he made threats against the life of a stripper. And I wish there was more stuff written about, about this because that would just say that Sanford's, you know how everyone says there's two sides of him? The other side, like the bad side, the volatile side is insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it takes kind of like a sociopath on some level to do that if it's true but we don't know if that's necessarily true but we've also heard some other suspicious things about him so it's kind of hard to discount everything that people say about him yeah for sure um one of the weird things is larry shanker uh so back in october 22nd 2005 aliza and sanford got into a volatile physical fight after Eliza had discovered Stanford had resumed a friendship with a man named Larry for very good reason, it seems like. Larry Shanker is Stanford's friend with the f- and is a former law enforcement officer, and he seems shady as hell. Shanker maintains that Stanford kept telling him over and over again about their marital problems, that they were seeking attorneys, and that they were dealing with domestic problems. Shanker bought a recording device for Stanford. Specifically, it's protection against Eliza's attempts to provoke Sanford into an argument that she could use later on. He just assumed that Eliza was recording um, these fights against Sanford so that she could use it against use it against him in any uh, domestic claims. Additionally, Shanker and Sanford held multiple conversations about how someone could get away with committing the perfect murder. And what? Who does this in real life? <laughs> Talking about committing the perfect murder is not a conversation I have with my friends. No, but I have asked Siri. She answers. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like how to hide a body. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I told you I'm already on a watch list somewhere for everything I Google, you know. I know. We just make Brad Google everything. Like, hey, Brad, how long does it take for a body to decompose? One moment. Oh, yeah. Let me look this up. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. I've been on a watch list for probably like 10 years now at least. <laughs> We're learning so much about you today. Oh, yes, yes, we are. Yeah, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Shanker revealed to Jennifer's attorneys that he gave this scenario to Sanford. Don't use your car. Don't let your car be seen. Don't use a gun because it could be heard. Don't use your street clothes. Use something that could cover up your entire body, your face, your hands. And done, mm-hmm. done. What is a suspect in the grainy murder footage wearing and doing? The suspect is completely covered head to toe. Brad could barely make out some sort of forehead or skin being revealed as they ran away. The person used a weapon that was definitely not a gun. And they knew how to keep his or her face from away from the camera, even when running away from the scene of the crime. Yeah. But I think we... Okay, so Sanford is tall, though. So I think... It's pretty much been assumed that it cannot be Sanford in the video. So, right. oh, for sure. Oh, for definitely. sure. But Lindsay, you had said something about a professional hit or something, right? 
Or, yeah, or one of his, or his girl. I don't know if he had a girlfriend at the time or what, but if there was money involved, millions, could he have convinced the lady that he was dating at this time to mm-hmm. commit it? I don't know, because there's really nothing about a woman that he was dating anywhere that I found. So, but I mean, it's, I guess it's a possibility if we're considering that Sanford was behind it. I mean, a professional hitman would not kill somebody like that in broad uh-uh. daylight. So no. it had to be somebody, if Sanford was behind it, it would have to be somebody that he personally knew. Mm-hmm. But I'm just guessing. I'm, I'm not professional. I'm not on the Sanford <laughs> train, but we'll get to that next part anyhow. So, you know, mm-hmm. you know where I'm okay. at. <laughs> what, Brad? I said, you know where I lie at with the... Uh, who planned this thing? Shady as hell. But anyhow. We're we're about to yeah. find out because we're about to dive into Gregory Moore. So reminder, Gregory Moore is the lawyer that took over Elise's case. So this guy, get ready to get pissed because this shit is crazy. So on the day of Elise's murder, she had texted Moore when she arrived outside of his office to tell him that she was there um, and that the door was locked. He replied saying he was in the office. She asked him to unlock the door. And when that didn't happen, after some time, she said she was going to go back to her car because it was cold outside. That's when she was stabbed and killed. So Moore continued to tell the police that he was inside his office during the murder. He maintained that this was his, this was his story until about a year later when the FBI stepped in and made a pretty big discovery. So Greg had called Elisa shortly before she arrived there. And when the when they looked at the records during the investigation, they saw that his cell phone actually pinged off a tower that was east of his office. It's not the tower that would have correlated with his office if he was calling from within his office at the time like he says he was. Yes, and on yes. top of on top of that, there's um electric key card data from the office and witness statements proved that Moore had actually left the building one hour before Eliza was killed. And he did not come back until about an hour after police arrived on the scene. Oh my God. Hmm. So if you're, if you're wondering where he was and why he lied, you are out of luck because when the police called him out on this lie, he stopped cooperating altogether and he's been uncooperative ever since. Like he's never explained where the fuck he was pardon my language but this guy is insane um but this isn't the only thing against him if you want to get even more pissed he had actually called in bomb threats to courthouses just to postpone hearings that he wasn't prepared for he called in bomb yeah he called in bomb threats to three domestic relations court employees in july 2012 and wouldn't you know it He had three divorce cases set to take place in the same three courtrooms that he had called into. And he was suspected as the caller just days after he had done it, but he wasn't indicted for it all until six months later. Um, And I just don't understand what, if you're a lawyer of that, he was a senior partner or whatever in that firm, right? I just don't understand why he was that unprepared and why he went to that lengths to, basically do the equivalent of my dog ate my homework. Exactly. But remember, Elise, it was known that Elisa did not like Gregory more mm-hmm. because she said he was late, he was not responsive, mm-hmm. and he was unprepared. Like, he yeah. had a long history of... 
being like this and going to extremes to postpone cases. And he was suspected of other bomb threats that were called into courthouses in nearby counties earlier in 2012. He never admitted to him and um, it could never be proven. So they're not attributed to him, but they were probably him. So he -hmm. gets a history of having problems with this. Um, So he was eventually indicted in January 2016. Originally, it was on 16 charges, but he made a plea and most of them dropped. So he, in the end, he only pled guilty to a felony inducing panic and a misdemeanor falsification of charges. And that was for both the false statements that he made in the Eliza case and with the previous bomb threats. Um, Uh He did get the max sentence, but it was only six months in jail, three years probation and 350 hours of community service. He lost his lawyer's license, whatever the hell it's called. And mm-hmm. it's just not enough. It's seriously not enough. He's, I'm sorry, but he's a piece of shit. And he's a liar. He's never cooperated. The only good thing is I liked out of the whole trial was the judge really called him out for being a horrible representation for a lawyer. Right. We actually, yeah. we have a clip of it. And I think that what you did here is, you know, one of the worst things that possibly you could do. You've taken anything and everything that an attorney stands for and just turned it upside down and, and just uh, lessens everybody's respect and, and everybody's uh, um, opinion of, of attorneys in general and certainly the, the domestic relations part. Okay, so we have this linked on the post, and just go ahead and listen to the whole thing. Because when the judge starts giving the sentence, it really pisses me off that this dude has to go mm-hmm. to jail for like one day a month for a year. Yeah, but <laughs> I I think you can hear it and see it in the judge's voice too. He's like, "This is the max sentence I can give you," but it's like everyone in that courtroom knows he deserves so much worse. <laughs> I mean, who? Get yeah. a jail sentence where, okay, you got to go to jail this month on this day. Oh, we're just going to, why not just hit it all in one shot? So, you know, let's put him in the good part of jail where people can take him out because <laughs> he's a lawyer. Oh, that's why he didn't get to go to real jail. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just incredible how much everyone in the courtroom hates Grogu Moore and says you are a disgrace to the profession be ashamed of yourself you're a piece of shit it's incredible it's incredible mm-hmm. so the, I want to ask what each of you what your grand theory is or if you personally think that you know what happened mm. okay who wants to start first <laughs> You go, Brad. I know you've got something. <laughs> okay, so here is my thought on this whole entire thing. Moore was a dipshit, and he wasn't prepared <laughs> for what was going on. So we know he called in bomb threats, and we know he probably had shady connections because he called in bomb threats and did everything else. He had somebody attack Eliza. Let him know where everything was in the area. You need to do this. Go here to go here, go here. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to attack her, but not 
actually kill her. Mm-hmm. And well, it's it's a bomb threat, basically. And mm-hmm. somehow that played out into more than what happened. But they still got away with it. Now, what happened to that person afterwards is a totally different story. Because I have seen things, you know, there's, you know, more had connections to other people who had bad things happening with them. So I, that, that's where I'm at. He played a huge part in it. That's why he wasn't there at that point in time. He called her down. He kept rescheduling everything, got her down in the area at that point, and also had to be away because, you know, we couldn't go down there and be seen or whatever. I, mm-hmm. More, he's the person I'm with right there. <clears throat> That's who did it. And his crappy-ass sentence that he got was nothing. Yeah. Because literally, like, my... um. A 16-year-old told me when I took her phone away one day, she said, what's that teaching me? Yeah, his one day in jail per month for a year, exactly the same thought. What's that teaching me? Nothing. (laughs) Oh, my God. And if you you watch the video that we're going to put a link to, you can see he makes a statement um, right before the sentencing. Um, He makes a statement as well. I can't really tell if he comes off genuine or not. I don't know. I don't. I don't. He, I don't know. You he can hear what he has to say about it, though. No, I'm, I'm. He had everything to do with this murder, and maybe the one big smart thing he did was to figure out how to not get busted in it more than he did mm-hmm. with the person he contracted out to. Contracted. Maybe it was somebody else that he helped at one point in time who had a favor to him. I don't know. Somebody somebody who knew somebody. Either way, it's totally on him because she is he is the reason why she was down there that day at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean he lied. Ugh, so right. frustrating. And I mean, granted, he's a lawyer. He knows. Yeah, I plead the fifth. I ain't gonna tell you nothing, because you know, anything I say can't indict me. Which also leads back to my other thing of never tell the cops anything because you end up in jail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it's you just murder weird. someone, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> or, or no, if you tell them, no, it wasn't me who did this. I seriously didn't do this. Could it be somebody else who looked exactly like me and had my name also? <laughs> yeah, it could have been. If you right, don't know that yeah. case, check our Facebook group because there was a guy who had a doppelganger yes. whose same name was him, looks exactly like him, and he was in jail for the other guy's crime. For like 17 years. Yeah. Craziness. Yeah. So I still don't talk to the cops. It's just my whole thing. I'm just wondering. Man. I like the cops. I just don't want to talk to them and say anything that can incriminate me for a further issue that I don't have. <laughs> for your doppelganger yeah. murder. Right. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. All right, Jeff. And it has to yeah, it has to mean something that Moore is so refusing to cooperate. If he was if he had like taken a nap or if he had forgotten the meeting or anything, that's an easy thing to explain for his disappearance. And yet he refuses to give it up. Either way. I mean, seriously, I was at a surf club. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know? Right? But it, what but are you it doesn't hiding? explain why, even when she's standing in front of the building, he is uh-huh. lying to her over text about him being in there. And he lied yeah. to the cops about being in there for a year until he got called out for it. So he's never offered 
another explanation. Uh-uh. I just, I feel so bad for Jennifer and for Elise's family because I cannot imagine how frustrating it would be mm-hmm. to know that somebody like Gregory Moore straight up lied and is unwilling to say why. Uh-huh. And you yeah. just have to deal with it. I mean, it's just, it's honestly tragic. Mm-hmm. Yep. So my theory is it's not, I don't think it's Gregory Moore, even though I would love if there's a reason to make sure he's not out and about with normal people. Um, My theory is actually Larry. And the reason why I think it's Larry is he is a former law enforcement officer and he just so conveniently happens to have given Sanford, I keep wanting to call him Sherman too, uh, Sanford, advice about the how to commit the perfect crime he was supposedly privy to the fact that sanford was always giving telling him about his and aliza's uh, marital unhappiness and everything it just seems that he has way too many kind of strings uh like puppet strings and everything and so it seems that he would be the perfect person to plan everything and get rid of like the thorn in his side that Aliza is as well as dependent on everything. Uh, sorry, the crime on all the other people, both Sanford getting the boot because he got the advice from Larry and then just seeing Gregory Moore just crumble down in court. But also I've watched far too much CSI where this happens. So uh, <laughs> I think that's helping a lot. Mm. That. Yeah. I was trying to look up to see if we had a pair a picture of Larry because mm-hmm. I was curious like what his height is. So wait, do you think that Larry actually did the whole stabbing thing? No, think I think he, he committed he it. No, I think he didn't commit the actual stabbing, but he was like the mastermind around everyone, whether that involved getting a contract killer or anyone, or just getting someone to do the dirty work for him. But I think he was essentially the one responsible for the whole thing. So yeah, not the person who stabbed Eliza, but the one who was responsible for this entire murder. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay. I really don't know what I think. I'm going to (laughs) go with an impossible, something crazy. I Mm -hmm. think that no i really don't know i was gonna say that sanford and greg were working together but that's not i'm just making shit up i don't know honestly every time at at one point i think it was definitely greg um like brad said he had her in the perfect spot he lied Mm -hmm. he had a history of doing this everything points to him so i think it's most likely that he had something to do with it it's so hard to ignore everything that happened in, with Sanford and um, Elisa locking her door from within and the whole $2 million thing and writing a letter to an email to herself that she was worried he was going to kill her and the whole thing with Larry. I mean, it's so suspicious, but uh-huh. I feel like more on the day that it happened and when it comes down to the actual murder, I feel like it points points to Gregory Moore. I just have a hard time believing that you could, I don't think it's a contract killer professional. There's no freaking way a professional is going to kill somebody on the street like that in broad daylight. I just don't think that that would ever happen. 
-hmm. If it was somebody he knew, maybe, but it's so hard to believe that that person would leave no evidence behind and that nobody would get caught for it after all these years Mm -hmm. or admit Mm -hmm. something or slip up. It's just, I honestly don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole thing, too. It's, it's hard to say one way or the other. We have ideas of where things are lying. The cops are still looking for everything. I mean, if you have information regarding uh, the Eliza Sherman murder, contact Crime Stoppers at 25crime.com or 216-252-7463. All tips are made anonymously, and there is a $100,000 reward for the information that leads to Eliza's killer. If you know something, let somebody know. All we're doing is we're going over what we know so far and giving our opinions on stuff. We are by no means law enforcement officers or (laughs) degreed and everything. So that's where it is. And seriously, if you know something, let somebody know. Yeah, we're not experts. I can't even come up with my own theory. So (laughs) I'm definitely not qualified. It's like, I have my theory, but it it could be right, could not be right. I'm just saying what I would think would happen because I, it's the whole thing with Moore and his not being there and not saying anything. I can understand not saying anything because I brought that up. Don't talk to cops. Mm -hmm. But, but here's, But here's the thing, Brad. How could they not mean to kill her? They stabbed her in the head. Yeah. Because you're overtaken with whatever. I mean, we never found the person who killed her, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't know, was this a um, normal person or was this somebody who was maybe strung out on something and might have got a little crazy on the the, uh, way back here? Uh, So they're... You got a junkie who's trying to kill somebody to get money for a fix or something like that. So they're killing a person. They went crazy. And that was later on, you know, tied up later because I've watched so many crime shows and other stuff that this person was OD'd later on in the day, but no one tied two and two together because it wasn't there. I don't know. That's the whole thing. And you're running away. We know that this person, there are other cameras in the area, but they were not seen anywhere. I guess. I I just I just wish you had the answer for me. I'm just disappointed. I do not. That you- I am sorry. When I get my time machine and I can go everywhere, I will let you know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But I, I'm just, that's the only thing I got is like the person got carried away who was doing it. So originally it was like, okay, I need you to go up and stab her like three times or two times or whatever, enough that she we have to delay something. And they just went up and went, oh, and just kind of went on the crazy side of stabbing 11 times. God. I don't Who know. knows? I, it seems far-fetched, but the whole situation is crazy. So I guess you never know. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell what the mindset of the person who was doing the attack was in at that point in time. Yeah. Like, I still go with the druggy idea. I mean, were they high on something at the moment that they just kind of went with it and still ran off? They had the limp in the video. Could the limp be from them holding the jacket or something else? Yeah, but would you trust a junkie or somebody high on drugs to keep their face concealed and everything? I mean, if if, if Moore had said... 
it had to have been somebody that he trusted wholeheartedly to do it without getting caught or leaving evidence. Would you trust it a It doesn't junkie? matter. I mean, it's the whole fact that they disappeared. So we know Moore's not in the office, right? Okay, so I'm just going to hypothetically throw this out here and just go with it. <laughs> so go with me. So we have the junkie person comes up, stabs Lisa, Eliza, and Ew. runs off into the camera. We see her go past that one area, and then we don't see her anymore because she turned into a building and went somewhere where Moore was. And then Moore just promptly did whatever with this person, and that's it. It's done. So I was like, why did you go crazy and you know stab her a thousand times? Uh-huh. May or may not have said something. This person literally could have been drugged up beyond belief at that point in time. Just, you know, let's shoot up some more. Doesn't even know what happened. Yeah. Not even, no clue what's going on anywhere. Because, you know, if you're an addict and stuff like that and you get onto a serious high and you're gone, you're not going to remember shit. Yeah. There are things that can happen with that whole thing. It's like, did Moore have any connections like that? I don't know. Did he know people who did? I don't know. But there's this whole point in time where Moore isn't around he doesn't want to say anything. This person doesn't show up anywhere. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, he had to have been watching her. Well, the worst case that happened. Knowing, like the perfect time to I mean, he set her he set her up. There's nothing I mean, he set her up. Right. How it all went down, I don't know, but he he set her up for sure. Right. And the worst thing that could happen, right? Okay, it happened right in front of his building. So junkie person or person attacks Eliza, gets busted totally right out in front of it, right, after it happens, and says, the attorney guy told me to kill his client, uh, kill her. And he's like, dude, I'm an attorney. I don't know. Dude, I, I'm lawyer, right? I don't know anything about this. Because they're out in front of the building where it is, you know, clearly mm-hmm. they knew, they saw the wording or whatever. And I mean, there's enough plausibility that you can go, I have no idea. I mean, police may look at it, but you can still deny it all day long going, I'm a lawyer. I don't know who the hell this person is that's claiming mm-hmm. they're telling me to do this. Why would I tell somebody to kill my client? Okay. So I called in a couple bomb threats, but seriously, why would I do that? You know, yeah. all day long more. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I don't know. Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of like Jennifer in this whole thing, her daughter, Jennifer. She has been a big supporter of her mother and her voice has come out on a lot of things. Every year they have the anniversary march that they do. Mm-hmm. And we have a video for her that we're going to go ahead and play. Yeah, this is her opening statement at Gregory Moore's trial. So Gregory Moore, just envision the courtroom. Gregory is sitting behind her as she makes her opening statement addressing the judge. She was 53 years old when she was murdered. She had so much of her life to still live. After 28 years of suffering silently in what she (coughs) described as a world of terrorism, my mother finally had enough of the suffering. She had a new dream for her life, just to be free. Filing for divorce in 2011 was supposed to signify my mother's escape from a hostile and corrupt marriage. I had the honor of supporting my mom during the fight for her life, as she called it. 
I stood behind her unconditionally as she courageously battled her way through a vicious divorce and attempted to defend her rights to freedom, safety, and happiness. I have and will continue to be my mother's voice in order to ensure that her story is heard and that the trauma she endured and documented will never be forgotten. I stand here today as a representative of my mother, who was the most loving and selfless mother, a deeply devoted sister and daughter, a loyal friend and a dedicated nurse. She was brave, kind, and compassionate. She will always be my true hero. My heart has ached for my mother each and every day since she was brutally murdered. A piece of me was stolen the day my mother's life was viciously cut short. She has missed out on so much and is still so needed in the lives of her children. She has missed graduations, my graduation from nurse practitioner school, her son Jason's graduation from medical school, her son Jeremy's graduation from high school. She missed my wedding, the birth of my daughter, her first grandchild, something we used to daydream out loud about together. Most importantly, she has missed out on a future that she so deserved. Greg Moore knew my mom was vulnerable and frightened. In the midst of facing some of the darkest days, holding on to a thread of hope for a light at the end of the tunnel, an end to the contentious divorce she had wavered through for nearly two grueling years. He invited her downtown on Sunday, March 24th, knowing she depended on him to be ready for trial, to prepare, to be her attorney, someone she could count on and trust, to be her champion. He invited her downtown in the cold of winter, letting her stand outside, carrying her boxes, her papers, her life, knowing she couldn't get inside. Frantic, where are you? She tried to reach him. He lied. He led her downtown. While she waited trying to get in, she was viciously attacked and murdered. Greg Moore was unprepared to bring my mother justice when she lived, to blow the dark clouds of a divorce from a man she feared. Greg Moore has had 1,522 days and countless opportunities to aid in seeking her justice since her vicious death. Yet instead, he has admitted that he lied to law enforcement about his whereabouts and continues to sit here today without explaining himself or sharing what he knows. This man does not deserve leniency on any level and should be jailed for the full extent of his crimes. It is my sincere hope that you will make it clear to Mr. Moore today, as well as this city and its community members, that lying is unacceptable, that individuals must be held accountable for their actions, as they can have a life-altering, and in my mother's case, a life-ending impact. So at the end of that clip, just imagine as soon as she says those last words, she turns around and glares at Gregory Moore. Uh -huh. It like is a piercing look. It's so messed up. And and as much as we, you know, talk about all this, we, you know, you got to remember, this is a real thing to happen. This is a real tragedy. These are real people. And I just, I, like I said earlier, I feel so bad for Jennifer and her other family and friends that, they may not get an answer to this, especially if Gregory Moore was behind it and he just got away with it. You know, it's it's just sad all around. I mean, it's stuff that could just disappear. I mean, I'll leave it. Let's go to TV for this. Better Call Saul. Saul Goodman. You know, <laughs> everybody's watched Breaking Bad. Everybody's probably watched Better Call Saul. But you know the stuff that lawyers can do. 
and it's the shady stuff that happens in the background that you never hear about. And I still, that's kind of where I lean with him. It, there's things that he did. Jennifer gl- blames more for it. That's good enough for me right there. Yeah. I mean, and when you, you hear that clip, she's, I mean, she kind of also calls Sanford out a little bit. She's definitely calling Gregory Moore out. And rightfully so. Her mom was murdered because of him lying and possibly more than that. So, you know, she's very much still active in trying to solve her mother's murder and get justice. So, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, There's so much to this case and there's so many unknowns that we just want answers for. I don't know if we're going to get them. Nothing's really changed on this case. Unless more video evidence comes forward, that's pretty much all we got. But if nothing else has come yet from the the video that we've seen of the uh, suspect, I don't know what else to pull from it. Right, right. There are are people out there that say that that more videos of the attack or the alleged person who did it um, exist, but I don't know that that's true. That's just a rumor. So, but nothing else is out on the internet. So, hmm. mm-hmm. it's just incredibly tragic. It's, it's five years. It's so sad. If you have theories you want to share about the murder of Eliza Sherman, or if you want to suggest a case for the show, you can comment in SoundCloud or on Pure Fandom. You can also chat with us on Twitter. Me, Jasmine at Blueberry Jelly, Lindy at Lindy R Smith. Brad at Brad ZB. And you can find Pure Fandom on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah, just type it in and we'll pop up and we'll talk to you. <laughs> and we made a uh, Pure Murders and Mysteries group under Pure Fandom. So if you want to yes. join some people that talk about true crime and, and cults and discuss the episodes, then you can head there. But I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for joining us for this case. Until next time for... Jasmine and Brad, I'm Lindy, and you've been listening to Pure Murders and Mysteries. That's it for this episode. Head on over to purefandom.com for more awesome content.